0: This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. I'm Aaron Gullius. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking, no simple ex- Welcome to Series 3 of The Saucer Life. We're extremely thrilled that you're still along for the ride. And in planning Series 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 of the show, especially since it's gone weekly, what we're hoping to do, hopefully, is to continue to provide enough variation between topics each week to keep it interesting. I was thinking, though, that it would be nice to have some sort of overarching theme. So, Series 3 is going to look at contacts and encounters in a number of ways, which we can call mind, body, and spirit. First is the power of the mind and the role of the mind in flying encounters. We're going to examine ideas such as channeled messages from space beings and supposed psychic or clairvoyant and clairaudient contacts with non-human intelligences. As for spirit, we're going to look at some of the explanations or expressions of flying saucer belief. And bodies? Um, don't worry, we're not going to be rehashing any talk of alien autopsies or Roswell mummies. Rather, we're going to look back at a time when stories about strange beings from flying saucers were much more prevalent than they are now, and we'll examine one of the best books of the 1960s about that topic. So with this this is Series 3 and Encounter 301, a good old-fashioned ether frolic. Today our focus is on what I think is one of the most fascinating organizations in paranormal and flying saucer history. In 1945, literary scholar and psychical researcher Mead Lane established a newsletter called The Round Robin. The purpose of The Round Robin was to serve as a means of communication between different researchers. The idea is a simple one. There are a considerable number of educated and intelligent people who are not only interested in various problems of psychic research and parapsychology, but who carry on to a varying degree with experimental work of their own. And there are others who would like to do so if they were in touch with persons of similar interests and had some means of acquiring and giving out information. Our own private correspondence shows that there is a real need for some kind of clearing house for facts and ideas. There should also be some means whereby those who wish to could learn the names and addresses of other investigators and perhaps correspond with them to mutual advantage. So the round robin started out not as a platform simply for Mead Lane's views, but as a forum for the views of any number of people who wanted to get involved with experimentation and investigation into the strange. So starting with just about 15 to 20 people on the initial mailing list, the organization would eventually, by the early 1950s, become known as the Borderland Sciences Research Associates, a group that continues to this day. Now, you may have noticed that the initial publication date of the Round Robin is a couple years before Kenneth Arnold's famous flying saucer sighting of 1947. As we've seen with our exploration of the 1897 airships, strange things in the sky did not begin with Kenneth Arnold. In the October 1946 edition of the Round Robin, Lane provided reports of a number of sightings. His reports, he claimed, preceded all other written accounts of the same sightings by at least a week. Round robin, minuscule minnow amid whales and hippopotami of journalism, prevents with blushing modesty a tale which time may yet reckon as of high import. Many and many are the accounts of strange objects seen in the skies, and passing through them and falling therefrom. To these we add the latest, in our opinion, the most significant of them all. And then, in the next place, we set down an explanation acceptable to ourselves, tentatively, temporarily and which many people will, temporarily also, regard with amusement or contempt. We print today what we believe today, hoping that on some tomorrow we shall all be wiser. The first report came to this writer about 7.45 p.m. October 9th as a telephone call from Mr. Mark Probert of San Diego, who, with a boy named Fernando Estevane, was watching the meteors from the top floor of a building. His description was substantially as follows. Quote, this object was about the size of an extremely large plane and carried two reddish lights. At first it was moving with extraordinary speed, faster than any plane. I saw it twice. The second time it crossed the face of the moon, and the flapping of its wings was plainly visible. The whole object seemed somewhat luminous." End quote. To this, Fernando Estevane added later, quote, "It had two lights. It certainly was not a plane. No plane could maneuver that way." Mark Probert was an incredibly integral part of the BSRA and would serve as a psychic channel for a number of entities providing information on all manner of paranormal and parapsychological subjects. And we'll see some examples of this later. Probert's and Estevane's reports were just two that Lane relayed to Round Robin subscribers. There were many others, such as this from a, uh, a Mr. B.I.M. His initials were the only thing provided. My friend, Captain Sheffel, and I observed some object between 8.30 and 8.45 in the west opposite the moon, moving south to north. It left a kind of flash or trail behind it in a straight line. It moved very fast. We saw it only about three seconds. Captain Sheffel says he thought it had something like a swing with a square tip like a Grumman plane. There was a kind of reddish glow about it. We thought it might be a rocket because one had been fired in New Mexico and could possibly have reached here, but that doesn't fit in with the other facts either. Lane then moves from the sighting reports to interpretation. Just a warning, I'm probably gonna proclaim my undying love for the language he uses here. So, you know, be prepared for my gushing about how flowery and awesome this is. What we are going to do now, will delight our enemies, make the blood of our best friends run cold. We are going to declare our personal, editorial, present and tentative acceptance of certain psychic, mediumistic, and clairaudient communications. We have been a student of these subjects for the last three decades and are not going to stop to argue about them just now. This is a semi-popular psychic research publication, and data of the so-called supernormal sort has right and proper place within it. We submit that when phenomena of an extraordinary sort are in question, and when alleged data are offered of a coherent, lucid, and pertinent nature, only a great fool will throw them aside without a hearing simply because they happen to come by supernormal means. Yet such fools there are in plenty, of course, and we shall hear from them. With regard to what follows here, it has our tentative acceptance. We know the psychic well and have never yet been deceived in him nor by his controls. Yet anything can happen to an unwary psychic research investigator, and usually does. The account of the Carita, received clariodiently by Mark Probert, may be an elaborate hoax by the communicating intelligences, but we don't think so. And at present have no faintest reason to believe so. Merry gentlemen all who despise unworldly things, and all ye fish-blooded scientists with frozen sneers, you are enjoined to stop reading at this point before your blood pressure goes higher than the spaceship Carita knows to vault and curve in the empty blue. But there are, even among our friends, learned men and wise who do not despise the founts of the supernormal, as well as a great number of well-educated folk who are much too smart to ignore such sources fish-blooded scientists. I'm going to use that at some point. I don't know where, and I don't know how, but I'm going to use the phrase fish-blooded scientists. You're probably wondering what a karita is. We're going to get to that. Um, But first, I want to emphasize the fact that Lane is going to accept supernormal evidence, psychic readings, clairaudient channeled messages, the sort of thing that fish-blooded scientists are not going to pay attention to and the things that a lot of flying saucer researchers in years to come would not pay attention to. This gives us a window into the wider context of the work of the BSRA and the interests of other round-robin readers. Writer Charles Fort, once we get the adjective Fortean, had cataloged a vast number of strange occurrences that many would consider to be super normal or supernatural in books published in the 19-teens, 20s, and 30s. It's this Fortean background that forms the context of a lot of what Mead Lane and others like him are doing. At the same time as Charles Fort's writings, there was a long established, in the United States, Europe, and and elsewhere of course, fashion, hobby, pattern of attempted, alleged psychic communication with spirits, non-corporeal entities, and the like. We're witnessing a seminal moment here of which too few people are aware. And I'll acknowledge until a few years ago, I was pretty unaware of it too. If it doesn't sound too pretentious to say so, we're at a point where flying saucers and the occult parapsychological worlds begin to merge. And the great thing is that flying saucers don't even exist yet at this time, at least not in the public imagination, at least not in the way they would. We'll return to this point in a bit. For now... Let's, um, let's let Mead Lane examine the idea of Carita. Our examination will be through a clairaudient message relayed to Lane by Mark Prober. The Carita, the bird-like object seen winging its way around the moon about 745, was a mechanical bird from a planet many thousands of miles away. It is called Carita. It was purposely sent into the Earth's sky at this time because it was known to the people of the far-off planet that the skies would be carefully observed by many Earth people. The karita is taken through our air by our full knowledge of levitation, and is also run by this power. The flapping of the wings is used only when the karita comes into the Earth's atmosphere. It has ten thousand parts. The outer structure is made of balsa wood, coated with a thin layer of alloy. The wings are operated by electrical power. The motors are very small, but their power is great. I think it probably says something about the way I was acculturated ufologically or or paranormally that whenever I hear a bird-like object, my first thought is obviously Mothman. Anyway, this is really marvelous stuff, I think. We're not quite to saucers yet, but we're beyond airships or World War II Foo Fighters. The notion of a mechanical bird-like craft also brings to my mind old-timey footage of early flying machines. And not to get too far off track, but balsa wood and a thin alloy layer remind me a little bit of some accounts of crashed saucers in the late 1940s. So where does this Carita come from? This ship comes from west of the moon. No, I cannot get the name of the planet. It is many thousands of miles. These people have been trying to contact the Earth for many years. The Earth is now sending forth a strong ray or column of light, and this makes it easier to approach from other planets. Yes, these people come in peace. They are much more advanced than you are. Their bodies are similar to yours, but much lighter. They would like to make a landing, but they are afraid of their reception. They know they will not be understood. They want you to get a group of scientists who will meet them in some isolated spot. The matter must be kept secret from the public at present. Do not say anything to scientists about these communications. They would not understand and might reject the whole matter. But these people are most anxious to cooperate with you. Much will come through psychics in the next six months. If West of the Moon isn't the title of an obscure and pretentious prog rock concept album, it should be. It is reminiscent of East of the Sun and West of the Moon, a Norwegian fairy tale, but reading the tale, I didn't really see any connection. East of the Sun, West of the Moon was also an Aha album released in 1990, but I'm not going to listen to it to determine whether or not there's a connection. You are certainly free to do so yourselves. So we're in 1946, and we're already getting into place a lot of the tropes of flying saucerdom from the 1950s and beyond. They come in peace. They're advanced. They're like us, but not. They'd stop it and say hi, but we're too primitive to get them. Following the channeled material, Lane sums up the story with an alternative, somewhat normal, possible explanation, as well as some dismissal of conventional knowledge that, again, sounds like it could have been written by a saucer famine at any time between 1947 and uh, now. Brethren and cistern, on the night of October 9th, 1946, some vast contraption was afloat in our upper air. It not only was afloat, it was navigated. It was no plane or bird or projectile which is now publicly known. One conjecture is, maybe a spaceship built here on Earth, off for a tryout. That's our one hope of even pseudo-normal explanation. We take a kind of malicious satisfaction in observing that our 20th century folk have become so stupidly smart and smartly stupid that their friendly superiors can't help them, and are even afraid to try to land. Maybe they won't be back for a long time but maybe they will. Lane and his associates took Kenneth Arnold's 1947 sighting somewhat in stride, pointing out that they had been discussing such things for quite a while before the flying saucer craze broke, and reminding readers of the round robin that craft not dissimilar to what Arnold had seen were not new. In the July and August 1947 issue of the round robin, One of the Mark Probert controls, or psychic contacts, a guy named Lingford, uh, discussed the origins of the strange flying objects. When will you people learn that there are worlds within worlds? That the etheric worlds interpenetrate with your plane and with each other? I know I should not be sticking my neck out by talking so much about those saucers, as you call them, at least until I've investigated more fully. But they are not craft constructed on your planet, nor is it necessary to assume they came from any other planet. So they're not ours, in the sense of being top-secret craft constructed by Earth governments, but where they're from and what they are is not really as simple as saying extraterrestrial. Let's see if Lingford can explain it more clearly. It seems impossible to get it through the heads of you people that objects can pass from an etheric to a dense level of matter and will then appear to materialize there. Then they may disappear by dematerializing, returning to an etheric condition. These saucers that puzzle you so much came out of an etheric world also, and can return to it. Okay, I don't think he can explain it more clearly. So they travel through space, but also through different levels of matter, or even reality, which explains their strange behavior. But they are intelligently controlled craft, so what are they here to do? What are the purpose of their visits? Lingford discusses this in a way that is a little vague, but somewhat reassuring, except for the parts that aren't. The purpose of these visitors is simply to compel your attention, to wake you up. They come with good intent. They have some idea of experimenting with Earth life. I mean, of coming to your world to live. There will be many strange sky appearances, as we have often told you before in these seances. Watch for them. These saucers make their great speed because of their peculiar bun shape and peculiar motion. They encounter almost no air resistance. I do not know their means of propulsion, but I shall try to find out. The willful ignorance and hostility of your time towards etheric and astral studies is appalling. The strange sky craft reported over your city last November was probably also an etheric construction. These visitors are not ex humans, but they are human beings who live in their own world, which happens to be made of stuff which your senses cannot directly perceive, and which, therefore, you childishly imagine, cannot exist at all. If it's not too silly to suggest, I think that the ideal band name for the band that would record West of the Moon would be Peculiar Bun Shape. Anyway, this is interesting. Probert is experiencing contact with an advanced, not-quite-human-anymore intelligence, this Lingford guy who's passed on to another realm. But the intelligence Probert's communicating with is not the intelligence that's controlling the craft. So, is Probert a contactee? We'll return to that later. But he's not in contact with the actual craft pilots. He's in contact with an intermediary who doesn't know everything and is going to try to find out for us. We get some information, but not the exhaustive explanations of everything that we get from, um, you know, contactees. Lingford here also goes further in explaining the nature of the visitors. They're human but from elsewhere, but their planet isn't a planet in the same way Earth is a planet. It exists off to the side of our reality, which is a great sort of idea that's going to get some traction later on from other saucer writers. In the September and October 1947 issue of the Round Robin, Lane included many reports of the saucers, which he called locas, and gets into the many theories that are circulating around them, as well as addressing the concerns of the government and military. He's certain that the military and military intelligence and the FBI are deeply concerned. He doesn't yet think that anybody has a story that will satisfy the public and that concerns the government there's he describes three hypotheses he says some people say they're constructed by the russians other people say that um, they're atlantean craft from the lost land of atlantis and then there's mark probert's seances and what's interesting is he dismisses the russian craft idea out of hand and sort of blows off the atlantean idea and then Probert's ideas about the Ethereans, he just lets sort of hang out there without being explicitly condemned. It's a strange set of theories, and it's a good reminder that the knee-jerk response of their flying saucers from another planet had not yet embedded itself in the American consciousness. So where is Etheria? Where do the Ethereans come from? In his book, The Ship Mystery and Its Solution, which was first published in 1950 and then released in some revised editions over the years, Lane developed the ideas about Etheria a bit more. Etheria is here, if we know what here means, alongside, inside, outside of our world. Because our world is a rarefication. It is spaced out like a vast net, a net with enormous meshes, Imagine, if you will, a net of wire with meshes a mile wide. Would not wind and water flow through that net as if it did not exist? A little friction, very, very little, on the strands of those meshes is where we live. That is the so-called dense matter of our world. We look out across the mesh and do not see anything in it, or hear or feel anything in it, and so we call it empty space. Meaningless words in the abysses of folly. If you think that this is imagination, or that there is no room for these interpenetrating universes, ask the physicist and the mathematician. They will tell you there is nothing in the omniverse but room, and that is why Etheria is here. But it is also everywhere. All heavenly bodies have an etheric realm. In his 1953 book, The Coming of the Guardians, Lane presents a number of messages channeled by Probert. And among the various figures from the beyond that uh, uh, Probert uh, channels to us, we have uh, Chinese philosopher Lao Tzu and Thomas Edison. These guys would fill in the blanks about the Aetherians, their nature, and their reasons for visiting. Thomas Edison, for example, had this to say. About these discs that are stirring up so much comment, I'm a little afraid they're going to make trouble. I mean, they may start a panic. My ideas about them are much the same as those given by Lingford. They're etheric in nature, and they materialize spontaneously upon entering the vibration rate of your world of dense matter. And I think this is gonna stir up a hell of a lot of trouble. The great trouble, of course, is with your scientists. They can't get into the right way of thinking about such problems. They happen to be appearing just now because your world is now in that phase of thought. Do you understand what I'm getting at? There will be many other types of strange skycraft also. These people are much like yourselves, but they are much bigger. And Lao Tzu had some information as well. They are not here to interfere in your affairs. Nevertheless, if there is another world war employing nuclear energies, they may be forced to intervene. The release of atomic forces has disturbed their sphere of existence rather seriously. Let it be understood, that if ever such intervention becomes necessary, it will be wholly impersonal. There will be no taking of sides, it is contrary to the law, that any one plane should interfere with the processes by which another works out its destiny. This is not entirely different from what we might consider typical e messages. The Aetherians are concerned about nukes and their laws prescribe non-interference, The Aetherians are, however, from what we see here, able and willing to intervene in a covert manner. Lao Tzu continues, Always when a civilization, a culture, has reached its height and is destined to collapse, the Aetherians have appeared in numbers. They come to make an examination and final record for their own knowledge of the status of that civilization, somewhat as you might do with disappearing tribes and races. And it is true also that they have been alerted and disturbed by your release of atomic energies. But all past civilizations and races have had their day, and failed in some way, and passed out of Earth existence. So with your civilization. The Aetherian people came, and observed, and made their historical records. So they come now. Now this is a bit different. Unlike the messages of George Adamski and other contactees, there's a lot more fatalism here. We're destined to pass away, and the Aetherians wouldn't be here if we weren't in our last days. We're specimens, not friends. And the Aetherians are our superiors, not our space brothers. Most contactees tended to discuss humanity's primitive nature in educational terms, that we're in the cosmic kindergarten and would eventually know enough to move on up. Lane and Probert's sources describe us in anthropological, almost archaeological terms. We're a distant culture. We're the strange other. We're the aliens. And one way or another, we're doomed. I tend to agree with researcher Kurt Collins, who wrote about the early Carita encounters on his blog, The Saucers That Time Forgot. Collins posits that Mark Probert could be considered the first contactee, predating Georgia Damsky by several years. Collins, however, thinks that Probert's contacts being psychic rather than physical might disqualify him from that dubious honor, at least in the popular view. I say psychic contact counts. It absolutely counts. As we'll see during the course of Series 3, mental connections to non-human intelligences are very prevalent within the Contact E movement, and have provided some of ufology's most enduring tropes and trends. The only thing that MIGHT knock Probert out of the running for first modern Contact E is the fact that he got his information second hand. That in a way, and this sounds so strange to say, and I'm not sure what happened with my life that I say sentences like this. That maybe Lao Tzu and Thomas Edison should be considered the first contactees. Or maybe that Lingford guy, maybe he should be the first contactee. Well, honestly, that's silly. Wherever Probert was getting the information, he was the human who was connected to the advanced non-human intelligence, so he's the first modern contactee. And I'm going to make it my life's work to bring this up Anytime somebody says, Georgia Adamski was the first modern contactee, I'm gonna pull on my internet doofus fedora and post somewhere, well, actually, Mark Probert was the first contactee, and now I'm going to bore you with endless details about the Ethereans and the channeled messages of Lao Tzu and Thomas Edison. Which honestly is something that I've been kind of doing for months now on this show. Um I'll go now, I guess. Lane's connections to the world of flying saucers and, and the connections of the Borderlands Sciences Research Associates were not limited to tales of etherians Or at least, tales exclusively about etherians In the mid-1950s, an associate named Gerald Light began writing articles about the etherians and their world. He was part of that psychical wing of the saucer scene, to be sure. But his... his And by extension, Lane's most lasting contribution to UFO lore, even if it wasn't intended to be, was a 1954 letter from Light to Meet Lane. In April of 54, there was a report of several UFOs landing at Muroc Air Force Base. It's now Edwards Air Force Base. Light wrote to Lane shortly after this event with shocking news. My dear friend, I've just returned from Muroc. The report is true. "'devastatingly true. "'I made the journey in company with Franklin Allen of the Hearst Papers "'and Edwin Norris of Brookings Institute and Bishop McIntyre of Los Angeles "'confidential names for the present, please. "'When we were allowed to enter the restricted section "'after about six hours in which we were checked on every possible "'item, event, incident, and aspect of our personal and public lives, "'I had the distinct feeling that the world had come to an end "'with fantastic realism.' For I have never seen so many human beings in a state of complete collapse and confusion as they realized that their own world had indeed ended with such finality as to beggar description. The reality of the other plane Aeroforms is now and forever removed from the realms of speculation and made a rather painful part of the consciousness of every responsible scientific and political group. During my two days' visit, I saw five separate and distinct types of aircraft being studied and handled by our Air Force officials, with the assistance and permission of the Ethereans. I have no words to express my reactions. It finally happened. It is now a matter of history. President Eisenhower, as you may already know, was spirited over to Murak one night during his visit to Palm Springs recently. It's my conviction that he will ignore the terrific conflict between the various authorities and go directly to the people via radio and television if the impasse continues much longer. From what I could gather, an official statement to the country is being prepared for delivery about the middle of May. I will leave it to your own excellent powers of deduction to construct a fitting picture of the mental and emotional pandemonium that is now shattering the consciousness of hundreds of our scientific authorities, and all the pundits of the various specialized knowledges that make up our current physics. In some instance, I could not stifle a wave of pity that arose in my own being as I watched the pathetic bewilderment of rather brilliant brains struggling to make some sort of rational explanation which would enable them to retain their familiar theories and concepts. And I thanked my own destiny for having long ago pushed me into the metaphysical woods and compelled me to find my way out. To watch strong minds cringe before totally irreconcilable aspects of science is not a pleasant thing. I had forgotten how commonplace things as dematerialization of solid objects has become to my own mind. The coming and going of an etheric or spirit body has been so familiar to me these many years that I'd forgotten that such a manifestation could snap the mental balance of a man not so conditioned. I shall never forget those 48 hours of Murak. Mead Lane would not publish this letter for several years, and, and then when he did, he only published an excerpt and um, withheld the fact of Light's authorship. And his explanation or sort of introduction to it pointed out that Light's predictions about a revelation of the public had not come true. So did Eisenhower meet with aliens in California in 1954? The idea that he did and that he would continue to meet with aliens and establish diplomatic relations with them is a commonplace in many ufological circles today. Throw some, here's your homework, uh, throw some combination of Eisenhower met aliens at an airbase into your Google machine, and you'll see a number of variations and embellishments on Light's original story. Remnants of it show up everywhere, including the O.H. Krill papers that we saw a couple months ago. In fact, the first time I saw this letter... It was in the appendix to William Cooper's conspiracy classic, Behold a Pale Horse. Mead Lane would die in 1961 and Mark Probert in 1969. The BSRA would continue on, however, morphing into the Borderlands Sciences Research Foundation and lasts until this day. For Mead Lane, the saucer life, or the Aetherian life, was a part of a much larger picture. Subsequent saucer and paranormal writers such as Jacques Vallée and John Keel would share part of that bigger picture with their readers, connecting saucer lore to folklore and spiritualist traditions and other fields of interest that, honestly, would be left in the background once the term flying saucer became synonymous with alien spaceship. Thanks this time to Kurt Collins, whose blog The Saucers That Time Forgot reproduced some interesting news reports relating to the incidents discussed this week. Um, and also the Borderland Sciences Research Foundation, who've placed a vast amount of material online for visitors to view and use. They also sell other materials and, very coolly, facsimile copies of significant publications by Mead Lane and others. You can check out Kurt's blog at the Saucers That Time Forgot, all one word, blogspot.com, and the BSRF at borderlandsciences.org. We also appreciate all of those who've left reviews in various places especially iTunes. You can follow along with us at SaucerLife.com and on Twitter and Instagram at SaucerLife, or you can email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to the Saucer Life on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast app through the RSS feed on the website. And thank you to the, uh, the surprisingly large number of Stitcher listeners we have out there. Well done. Next time... There's more channeled fun with George Van Tassel and the development of Ashtar Command, one of the first sort of recurring characters in the flying saucer world. The Saucer Life is written and produced by me, Aaron Gullius, and is a chizo Media production. Until next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you.